Welcome to the Soak by Slush podcast with me, Mikko Mantra. Today, I have the absolute honor to be speaking to Brian O'Malley, managing partner at Forerunner Ventures, the famously consumer-savvy Silicon Valley firm. Brian himself has spent the better part of two decades making early-stage consumer bets, working at the behemoths that are Battery Ventures and Excel prior to joining Forerunner in 2018. Across the three firms, he's invested in companies like Dollar Shave Club, Coupa, Hotel Tonight, Sunday, and many more, and sat on a grand total of over two dozen boards. So on consumers specifically, and on building generational companies in general, I can't think of a better person to speak to. Let's go to the episode. All right, Brian. So it's really good to have you. And I, I wanted to start off with uh, the sort of the life cycle of a consumer business from your perspective. And I wanted to start with like problem and idea validation when your customer is a consumer. And in my mind, there are kind of three things that separate consumer businesses from en- enterprise businesses here and make problem and idea validation challenging. First, when you're a consumer company, your potential user base is always going to be like this huge nuanced tapestry of different demographics, different needs. Second, like businesses, you can at least expect to be relatively aware of what they want, but consumers might be misleading in describing their needs. And then I think lastly, while enterprise allows you to build in in really close conjunction with your customers, like, you know, you can sell first and you can build second, very few consumers are going to commit to a product at a level that allows you to do that. So how should you go about validating problems and ideas with consumers? Sure. So let me answer that question. And I think there's something that I don't agree with that you just said. So I'll hit that a little bit later. The first thing is there are kind of two types of consumer businesses out there fundamentally. Those that are providing services to people who already wanted them, but just couldn't get access, right? So this is the Uber example of like, everyone would love their own private driver, but the idea of that service was not possible until you thought about the you know, GPS-connected network of drivers, as well as uh, third-party off-balance sheet access to cars. So there's kind of one type of business, which is unlocking new supply, increasing convenience, and fundamentally taking something that people already wanted, but just couldn't get access to before. Those businesses are easier to understand because that demand is there. But if you were to take the old economics like supply-demand curve, it's just off-balance. The harder type of business to understand is where you're predicting some sort of thing that people maybe don't know if they want or need yet. And those businesses are the ones where we're really happy to be able to get involved early and be seed investors and work with great teams because a lot of times the learnings will have them evolve to a point that's very different from where they started. And this is an area where where I would disagree with what you said earlier. When I think about what makes those founders really stand out from the rest, they still have a proximity to their consumer in a way that you would traditionally think of with enterprise type companies. So when I think about like Tony from DoorDash, early days, driving all the food himself, talking to all the other drivers, talking to the restaurant owners, there is a proximity where you're not necessarily getting a comprehensive sample size of everyone, but you are getting directionally accurate data based on having those individual relationships with consumers. And that sort of detailed understanding of what people actually want is incredibly important because it's just hard if you throw all of your assumptions out there and do what increasingly happens these days where people think that they can test their way into a viable business model. It's really hard to test your way into that. You can test what color button you should have. You should test your font, but testing your fundamental premise of the business uh, takes away from the fact that these founders should know more about the need than the average user or then some A-B tests will, will ultimately produce. And are there some, like if in the, in the DoorDash story, the learning
saying was, you know, you can get really close to your end customer by delivering your product yourself, being the sort of the, the go-to-market yourself early on. Are there some other tactical lessons that early on can take you closer to that valuable real-time consumer feedback? We touched on this earlier, but I do think it's worth reiterating. One of the challenges that I see is too frequently people uh, will ask their consumer what the solution should be. And that is just taking something out of context where it's really your job to listen to what people's problems are and then come up with a viable solution yourself. So that I would say is like one thing you frequently see. The other thing is understanding the economic relationship with the consumer. I think a lot of folks find that offering something for free is the right answer. And, and certainly in a lot of cases it is, especially if you're looking for some viral coefficient. Consumers are also savvy enough to know that if they're getting something for free, there is a catch. And that catch might be that the relationship is going to change over time. This is your classic get three months of cable for one price, just knowing that at some point they're going to change it on you and, and not tell you. Or in the classic example of more ad-driven businesses, when you're not paying for it economically, you are paying for it with your own privacy. And those businesses, you are the product, not the consumer. Um, that's something that we see where products are fundamentally designed differently, right? If you're building an ad-based business, your objective is to keep people on site as long as possible, not necessarily respect their time to get in, get the information that they need and, and get out. And so we, for example, we've got a business called Clay, which is uh, in the personal CRM space. And you think about all the other folks that have built $100 billion plus businesses in that category. In each case, the end consumer is not the customer, right? So Facebook, uh, obviously the advertiser is the customer and they're trying to get your attention and the more sensationalized the information is, the longer you're going to stay on site. But there's also examples like LinkedIn where the recruiter is largely the customer. They're just trying to get you there so they can help you switch your job. And even things like Salesforce, you as the end user are not really the customer. Uh, your manager who is tracking you and watching what you're doing and making sure you're hitting your quota is the customer. And so we we think there's value for individuals who are willing to pay frequently if they understand that value equation of I am paying X in order to be the customer and receive Y. And when you're dealing with savvy consumers, a lot of times people are hesitant to pay, but if they understand that value trade-off, sometimes it's easier introducing an economic model earlier as opposed to having people scratch their head and wonder whether this is like five-minute grocery delivery in New York City and it's good for now, but not necessarily going to last in perpetuity. So if we approach that topic of, of deciding when to charge for a product with a bit more conviction, let's assume that you're a simple business where your source of revenue is your customer. Like what is the right moment to charge, start charging for your product? So this is a classic adage of just like, there's no general rule that is universally applicable. There's always questions about like how much, when, and the traditional freemium model versus a free trial model. You're seeing more and more companies going towards a free trial model because you want to get people interested in your product, not that they're willing to pay versus in freemium, a lot of times they'll just optimize around not using the paid features, which will typically prohibit someone from getting the full value out of your product. Like the last thing you want is someone to optimize for the free version and not like it when they maybe would have been willing to pay for the more enhanced version, which has ultimately a better value proposition to them. And uh, these days, I think with capital being relatively cheap, some folks have waited too long. And so when they go back and try to change it, it becomes a lot harder. This was another challenge for a uh, former portfolio company when I was at Excel, coming called Etsy, where they were charging 6% for ultimately the creation of businesses for tens of thousands of people. And when they tried to raise prices, people ultimately revolted, even though the, the fundamental setup was pretty 
low. So a lot of this comes to having better communication, telling people how prices are going to evolve. Is there an early adopter discount that maybe gets grandfathered in? But ultimately understanding that these are businesses, they do need to have an economic exchange. And the goal is for the product to be valuable enough that people are willing to pay and stick around. And I think you made uh, made an interesting point there saying that with like ubiquitous availability of, of capital, often the main source of capital in, in the early days for companies is their investors rather than consumers. So there's this almost naive perception that gets thrown around people saying that as long as your revenue is zero, people can, you know, imagine infinity. And as, as soon as you make revenue, it's always going to be too little, it's going to grow too slowly. So I know that this is a bit of a, a naive perception of things. But are there moments in which just for the sake of your investors, you should optimize for zero revenue over a little bit of revenue? It's a very astute question. So when I think about the advice that we're giving founders, the reality is, is that you need to be in one of two modes, you are either a self sufficient business where you don't need to care about what investors think, which is a very powerful position to be able to solve for your end customer, or you're on the train where you are burning capital for whatever reason and need to go back to investors at some point. And there is a reality that you do need to optimize your business for that wave of investors at the time that they're going to be looking at it. And so little simple things, which you would think that people who are paid to invest (laughs) in businesses for a living would pick up on, like seasonality can really help you if you raise at the right time and can hurt you if you raise at the wrong time. And so while that seems silly to recognize that a big Q4 might be seasonal or a business that drops off in the summer might also be seasonal, you still want to optimize your fundraising around when things look better for for your business. Specifically to the revenue point, there is a reality where if you have a, a clear CAC to LTV equation, it doesn't look good. That is going to make certain investors pass because they're not going to necessarily look under the hood, understand what you're learning along the way and understand how those learnings ultimately inform your direct and success in the business. And so you might have people pass, but you might have other people who understand that that is all part of the evolution and they would rather get it a little further along as opposed to a little bit earlier. But the primary mechanism that most, I would say early stage, but I think even later stage investors have adopted this train of thought, it's really around momentum and speed. And so you're better to have lower numbers, but with a greater level of momentum than you are higher numbers, but with less momentum. Um, because everyone is paying so much ahead for these rounds these days that everyone is looking two, three, five years out. And that's where the compounding effect of momentum really plays into to effect. And so this is something that I see all the time where people will reach out and say, hey, do we have enough revenue for, for things to be interesting? And that's never the equation. We will fund early teams with nothing more than an idea all the time. But when you have a business and you have demonstrated customer interest, the rate of growth is ultimately the more important factor than the absolute dollar of what revenue you have. Super interesting. So some merit to what is almost a VC meme-esque uh, kind of perception of the of the world. So one thing I did want to want to ask about is inevitably many consumer companies, certainly direct to consumer companies, will start off as relatively niche products and then eventually they'll have to transform into mass market products. I think that was true of Spotify where the early user base was people had been sharing music illegally over Napster. Famously it was true of Facebook. 
Facebook. And it was probably true of, of companies like Peloton as well. So if you start off as a niche product, how can a consumer company kind of educate subsequently expanding user bases on why they're important? So yeah, we see a lot of companies where the founder shows up and has this great example of when they have a million users, they're going to have this beautiful ecosystem. But what about your first 10 users? What about your first 100 users? So products need to work for insignificant populations. A great story I always loved was that in the early days of Zappos, they focused on transvestite men who were interested in buying larger sized high heel shoes because that's the kind of thing that you couldn't necessarily walk in and find at a local shoe store. And so there is always a goal to have an early audience where there is a disproportionate need for what your product is. So we really care a lot about whether founders have a strong act one thesis and understanding of how they can take something that is non-existent and bring it into bring it into the market. But at the same time, the best founders have a clear understanding of how that act one leads to act two, ultimately leads to act three, but they just understand that they can't start there out of the gate. Extremely interesting. So I think that's one question that I, I did want to put to you where, where I think it's true that at any given moment, both the upside potential and the downside risk of a consumer company is, is huge and certainly much bigger than for a for an enterprise company. So, you know, the question is simply like, which steps are most important to building enduring consumer products? It's hard to encapsulate all consumer products because there are, are, are very different examples, right? But yeah, ultimately, the most important variable on these businesses is retention, right? If you are losing 50 plus percent of your customers every year, that ultimately comes back and, and haunts you. So it doesn't matter how great economically they are out of the gate. If you're not retaining those consumers in a way that creates kind of economic value and enables you to go into each year with a solid base that you're building upon, there's just not enough money that you can throw at the problem in order to continue at the rate that we all hope these consumer businesses will grow. Absolutely. And let's finish this section off with one question and, and then let's jump on to kind of universal thoughts on, on, on building legendary companies. But to finish off on consumer, I think specifically in the context of, of consumer companies, although this does apply to some enterprise companies as well, you know, for a few years now, there's been a lot of talk about community-led growth. I think there's been so much talk that companies that aren't really communities are trying to portray themselves as being con communities. So first, I ask you to define what community-led growth through is and then to unpack when it is the right kind of primary growth strategy to pursue. Yeah, so I think if I were to define community-led growth, it would be where there's a collection of people who care about a company or an economic product more than they rationally should beyond the benefits of the product to the extent that it becomes part of their own individual identity. So community-led growth is beneficial in every facet of the business, whether you are very early in your life cycle or whether you're very far down the road. I think Tesla is an amazing example of this, where you have these fanatical people who will put up money well in advance, wait for their car, finally get it, have it be broken down in the shop for a whole month because there's a water leak in the roof and still just be fanatical about being part of the Tesla community. And so the nice things about community is one, you have an inherent group that cares about your business and can provide rapid feedback, can share the word more broadly with folks and have a level of passion, which helps your business rise above the noise. The second thing is that when you have an inherent community, there's a lot more forgiveness along the way for things that you're naturally going to do wrong as, as a business, right? Every business that is trying to grow 100 
plus percent year over year is going to make mistakes. That's not a natural rate of growth. And so having a community involved where they understand the reasons why you're doing things and therefore have a certain level of forgiveness when you inevitably screw up is helpful because it builds resilience into your company. And that's where I think a lot of folks pay lip service to a community, but they don't have one of two things. They either don't actually have people who emotionally care about their business uh, more than they should. They might manufacture that. They might think that's the case, but they don't actually have it. And two, they don't have an honest two-way communication with that community. I think that's certainly for me an incredibly helpful kind of frame around that concept. Then I wanted to try and kind of establish some sort of universal truths about building, you know, generational companies. And I wanted to start with Peter Thiel and Sam Altman, at least some others probably have kind of argued something to the effect of good companies are built by grabbing small shares of huge markets, whereas great companies are created by grabbing a huge share of a small market, but a market that is rapidly growing. And often it's a company itself that creates that growth. And I've read and heard you make some similar arguments. So my question is, how can a founder understand whether they're going to be able to grow a space that is currently tiny into a huge market down the line? Yeah, this goes back to something I was saying earlier, where a lot of these most successful businesses are the ones that change the fundamental equation uh, of the business. And so they might change the supply side. Um, You look at, I think, some of the best companies of the last decade, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, I mentioned DoorDash earlier, they were able to take third-party off-balance sheet assets and quickly grow a, a market, which historically might have seemed very seemed very small. Changing the economics of the business, being able to drop the cost of operating, take something like a Stripe or even a Twilio, bringing very important features easily accessible to the masses at a lower cost point, that opens the door for more transactions to happen, more businesses to be built on top. And that sort of touches on the third thing, which I would say is like changing convenience, right? Being able to take something that historically was a little bit out of reach, a little bit harder to do. And so the, the founders that are able to do this, the reason why I think that is a better strategy, ultimately of building a massive business is that you're dealing with something where the demand is already there, right? You're not manufacturing demand out of the gate. You're bringing something that either was too expensive, was too inconvenient, or had too much friction along the way to people who would have historically wanted it. And those businesses can typically have great remotes along the way because it's harder for folks to follow given the underlying cost of changing those factors that that set it up initially. Absolutely. And you already referred to the fact that perhaps the coolest part of, of, of the startup ecosystem is this very unnatural process by which people grow from leading very small companies in, into leading huge companies in a very short period of time. So what are some of the things if if I'm a, a pre-seed founder today and everything goes well, my company is going to grow huge, what are the ways in which I should expect to adopt over the course of that process? Sure. I think one of the hardest things for founders is this process of letting go. Right In the early days when it's just you, maybe a few other people, you have an intimate understanding of everything going on on the team. When we think about that evolution over time, there's a natural letting go process where you need to trust other individuals on your team, that they understand the direction and that they are able to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Otherwise, you as a founder will never scale. And so when we think about what is ultimately non-negotiable as a founder, you need to intrinsically know your customer, right? You need to be able to set the North Star for the business based on what is the problem that you're ultimately addressing. And that's something that at the end of the day, 
nobody on the team should understand the customer better than the, the founders because they've been working at it harder and they should ultimately have more time to be listening. And then the second thing is they need to be able to continue to inspire great people, grow to the point where they're recruiting really seasoned, phenomenal people onto their team because they're inspired by their vision. And kind of building on that, as a VC, you have to be expert at de-risking things that down the line might make a, a company fail. That's essentially what you're doing when you're evaluating a company. So I did want to put the question to you. What are the three most likely root causes of failure behind a company? Yeah, I mean, there's the adage of companies fail and they run out of money. So, you know, I will, I will throw that out there that ultimately you have a shot until there's just nothing left in, in the bank account. But I will take that, that further, right? So it's when you start to lose resources, right? So capital is one of those resources, but you also will see businesses where they kind of lose the heart and soul of their employees. And you start to have good people leave. And it's really hard to recover from that. And so sometimes you might even have more capital than you need. Like we'll talk to companies where they're like, look, we got three years of cash left. And it's like, well, that's great. But your employees and your customers really only have the patience for the next three to six months for you to deliver what you need to deliver. So you're actually better to spend more now to realize that vision than to slowly bleed over multiple years to the point where no one no one really cares. And that, that I would say is the other thing that I think ultimately leads to failure. It's just this challenge that any given day, no one really wakes up worried about your business besides you and maybe besides your team and the people around the company. The consumer doesn't wake up and have that level of care. And so there's always this constant question of how do you rise above, above the noise? And if you're a consumer business, that's ultimately where things where things struggle, right? And when I say not caring, it could be the end consumer. It usually starts there, but it could be the people on your team. It could be investors. It's ultimately this ecosystem. If people don't care what you're doing, it's really hard to prop up a business that is ultimately very fragile behind the scenes. What is the the kind of the one leading indicator that you should make you really worried about your about your customer losing interest in your business down the line? I'll give you I'll give you two because I think one is one is more of a metric that you should focus on, and then the other one is more an ideal. So just looking at cohort-based churn is the easiest way of understanding this. Because as I mentioned earlier, if you're losing enough people, it doesn't matter how many new ones you're bringing into the fold, because eventually you're just going to run out of folks who, who care. So that's the metric that you look at. I think the leading indicator that you'll frequently see is that the company needs to continue to raise the stakes to get people in the door. And I had concern for Clubhouse, which again is like a very strong product that was really at the right time with a really exceptional team. But when you look at like the goal of needing to bring bigger and bigger people into the fold in order to get people's attention, that feels like a losing proposition versus having people show up because that's where their friends and family are hanging out already. Like this is something that that I lived through personally. I was involved with a company called Viddy which was sort of like Instagram for video before Instagram had that. And at one point, we were adding over a million users a day. We're the number one app on the App Store. Really great product team. But the behavior shifted where it went from in the early days, people sharing videos of themselves, their friends, to their inner circle of people to a point where it was like the Justin Bieber's and Rihanna's and Taylor Swift's, like the very popular people of 2012 or 2013, whatever this was, <laughs> where it got to the point where you saw the bar changing for how people would come in and appreciate the product. And if you have these great spikes, we're like, oh, hey, they have all of these users but they're only showing up because big name people are posting content. 
you're losing part of that intrinsic community where it used to become used to be about people being creators and not just consumers of content. And so that's something that when we look at, are you having to raise the bar continually along the way to get the same level of interest? And that I mentioned in, in more social media businesses, but it's also true if you look at ad costs, incentive promotions to get someone in the door. If you're constantly having to raise that bar, that's a, a losing battle. It's something that you might need to take a step back and rethink the product value proposition instead of throwing a bunch of money at it. And then two years later, having to come to the inevitable conclusion that it's just getting too hard to continue to lift the company from there. And I think we have time for at least one more question. So I I did want to ask one question about when you're being pitched by founders or when pre-investment, you're exploring whether you might want to invest in a company. Give me a couple of things that you find founders regularly believing that you as a VC really care about in the early stages, but you don't actually care about that thing. Sure. I think there's a few things. One is who else invested and who their advisors are. I think a lot of times folks are like, oh, we got this person who's our advisor. And it's like, okay, that's great. But like, who's actually building the company? <laughs> like, I care a lot more about who's writing the code, who's acquiring the customers, who's building the operations than some name that you got to appear on a slide. Second is just like momentum around the, the, the round. Right. Try to create this FOMO factor where I've had enough terrible businesses that I've seen that are able to raise all sorts of money and get all sorts of momentum. And I've had enough amazing businesses that can't get the attention of investors that I try to disconnect myself from that. And so telling me that term seats are being accepted tomorrow when we don't really know each other, we don't really have a framework for being successful partners over time is not ultimately helpful because a lot of times investors are telling founders what they want to hear about their process. And they're maybe a little bit overly aggressive in terms of the time frame, And it really hurts founders' credibility when they say, oh, we're accepting term sheets tomorrow. And then it's like, oh, well, we've extended our deadline because we love you and you're really <laughs> special. Those things just burn credibility and it's not ultimately in people's self-interest. At, at the end of the day, raising rounds is a very nebulous process. It's unpredictable, especially these days. And so we look for humility in founders. We look for connection and understanding of what's really going on. So I'd rather someone say, look, we might get a term sheet tomorrow. There's a bunch of people we're talking to. It might also be two weeks. We're going to take the time that we need to figure out who we want to work with. Taking command of the process, as opposed to letting the process happen to you, helps me understand how you're going to work with customers, how you're going to work with potential employees, and how you're going to work with me down the road. I ultimately care more about that. And I think that is a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us and for having this conversation. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. 